When we started looking at First and Second Kings, we said they're actually one book. We have it in two parts today because the whole book wouldn't fit on just one scroll. And so this morning we're going to continue into Second Kings, having come to the end of First Kings. And as we do that, I think we'll see that really the division between the books is quite an artificial one. The passage we're going to look at bridges right across between First and Second Kings. But we are just about at the halfway stage of the book. And so it's a good point to remind ourselves what we're dealing with here. When we started, we noticed that these books together, or this book, covers around 400 years of history in just 64 pages. At least that's how much space it takes up in my Bible. So as big a book as it is in the Bible, lots of detail has been left out. That's why the writer often refers us to more detailed historical records. We'll hear about two of them in the passage we're going to read this morning. The book of the annals of the kings of Judah and the book of the annals of the kings of Israel. We're going to be told, if you want to hear more about these characters I've mentioned, look them up in those books. And that reminds us what we're dealing with is not just a record of history here in Kings. It is a record of history, and the writer is careful about getting the details right. But this book really is about the God of history. The same God who's alive and reigning today. The God whose throne is higher than any earthly power and authority. First and Second Kings were not written to make us experts in ancient history. They were written to show us the living God. So we would trust him and love him and follow him. That's why we still read this book today. And more than just reading it, that's why we pay it the most careful attention as God's people. If it was just a history book, we could take it or leave it according to our taste for history. But this is a book that teaches us about ultimate realities, not just ancient realities. It presents us with the God we cannot afford to ignore because our lives and our futures are in his hands. So we're going to read on, picking up at the very end of First Kings. And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 366 or in the larger print 563. And as we read, the question we're going to be asked is this. Where is your hope? We're going to pick up at chapter 22, verse 41. And we'll read right through to 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 18. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, became king of Judah in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 25 years. His mother's name was Azubah, daughter of Shilhi. In everything, he followed the ways of his father, Asa, and did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. 
The high places, however, were not removed, and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Jehoshaphat was also at peace with the king of Israel. As for the other events of Jehoshaphat's reign, the things he achieved and his military exploits, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? He rid the land of the rest of the male shrine prostitutes who remained there even after the reign of his father Asa. There was then no king in Edom. A provincial governor ruled. Now Jehoshaphat built a fleet of trading ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never set sail. They were wrecked at Ezion Geber. At that time, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my men sail with yours. But Jehoshaphat refused. Then Jehoshaphat rested with his ancestors and was buried with them in the city of David his father. And Jehoram his son succeeded him as king. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he followed the ways of his father and mother and of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as his father had done. After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, Go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, Why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied, and he said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and tell him, This is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel? that you are sending messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Therefore, you will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. The king asked them, What kind of man was it who came to meet you and told you this? They replied, He had a garment of hair and had a leather belt round his waist. The king said, That was Elijah the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain, With his company of 50 men, the captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king sent to Elijah another captain and his 50 men. 
The captain said to him, Man of God, this is what the king says. Come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. So the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there is no God in Israel for you to consult, that you have sent messengers to consult Baal's above the God of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Because Ahaziah had no son, Joram succeeded him as king in the second year of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. As for all the other events of Ahaziah's reign and what he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? This is God's word. And it ends with lots of fire. But it begins very differently. In the latter part of First Kings, we've been dealing with the northern kingdom of Israel. And as far as the leaders up north went, it was unrelentingly bad. We've heard a lot recently about Ahab. He was the worst of the lot. But we finished last week hearing about Ahab's death. And before we go on to hear about his son, we're given ten verses about a king of Judah down in the south. And it's a refreshing break from the mass of idolatry and rebellion we've been hearing about up north. We meet Jehoshaphat, a man committed to the Lord through success and failure. Now actually we did meet Jehoshaphat last time. He played a minor part in the battle that led to Ahab's death. Jehoshaphat fought alongside Ahab against the Arameans. And there he came across as a man who was committed to the Lord, but who didn't always make quite the best decisions. We saw Jehoshaphat was very concerned to inquire of the Lord before the battle, but we'd probably say he shouldn't have got mixed up with Ahab in the very first place. And that initial impression of Jehoshaphat is pretty much confirmed in what we read here. We're left in no doubt he was fully committed to the Lord, like his father Isaiah had been. And he worked to honor the Lord. Verse 46 tells us he rid the land of the rest of the male shrine prostitutes who remained there even after the reign of his father Isaiah. 
Those prostitutes were part of the worship of false gods. And Jehoshaphat did not tolerate them in the kingdom of Judah. His father, Asa, started getting rid of them, and Jehoshaphat finished the job. From the Bible's point of view, that is a success. But then we have a reference to something not so successful, down in verse 48. Now, Jehoshaphat built a fleet of trading ships to go to Ophir for gold, but they never set sail. They were wrecked at Ezion and Geber. At that time, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, Let my men sail with yours. But Jehoshaphat refused. If it sounds vaguely familiar to hear about ships going to Ophir for gold, that's because we have heard about that before in 1 Kings. During Solomon's reign, he sent ships there. And he also had his ships built at Ezion Geber. In terms of wealth and success, Solomon's reign was the golden age in Israel's history. And it seems Jehoshaphat was trying to restore those glory days. But it didn't turn out that way. The ships were wrecked before they ever set sail. And Second Chronicles gives us a bit more detail than we're given here. It tells us the whole thing actually went wrong because it was a joint venture with Ahab's son, Ahaziah. In other words, Jehoshaphat had said yes to Ahaziah before he said no to him. You can read about that in Second Chronicles chapter 20. But here, verse 49 is telling us what happened after the fleet was wrecked. Ahaziah wanted to try again. But Jehoshaphat said, no way, not again. So all around, Jehoshaphat is neither the wisest ever king nor the most foolish. His reign was neither a disaster nor was it a sparkling success. But Jehoshaphat stands out as a king because in a time of idolatry and evil, he was committed to the Lord through success and through failure. He was an unremarkable man who was devoted to the living God. And I think that's what we're supposed to take from these ten verses. What they're telling us is that what matters is not whether we have wonderful insights or whether we achieve great things. What matters is whose side we're on and who we trust. When you and I make mistakes in life, even when we fall flat on our faces sometimes, do we get up and carry on fully committed to the Lord? Fully committed to trusting Him and obeying Him. In the end... That is what will matter most. Not whether we got to the top in our career. Not whether we got our dream house or that great pension we'd love to have. 
not whether we got everything right as parents or grandparents. Not whether we have glowing tributes read out at our funeral. What will matter in the end for every single one of us is whether we were committed to the Lord through success and failure, through good times and bad, in sickness and in health. And we're showing this truth from a very different angle as the passage goes on. Because after showing us positively Jehoshaphat's commitment to the Lord, now we're shown negatively as the focus shifts to another king, Ahaziah, a man relying on the Lord of the flies. Ahaziah is given a general introduction in verse 51, and we're told he is just like his father Ahab and his mother Jezebel, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, serving and worshiping Baal. And then after that introduction, we're given an incident from Ahaziah's life. Over in chapter 1, verse 2 of 2 Kings. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, go and consult Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I will recover from this injury. Maybe Ahaziah was hunting for old photos up in the loft. Maybe he was sunning himself on the roof. We're not given the exact details. But the important point is he fell through something and he got hurt. Apparently very badly hurt. He wonders if he's going to die from his injuries. And facing the prospect of death, Ahaziah decides to consult not the Lord who had defeated Baal on Mount Carmel and defeated Ben-Hadad's vast armies twice and announced his father Ahab's death before it happened. No doubt Ahaziah was aware of all those things. He'd probably seen them at first hand as a son of the king. But as Ahaziah stares death in the face, he doesn't turn to the Lord. He seeks help instead from Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. Ekron was a Philistine city. It was not in Israelite territory. And Beelzebub was their local version of the god Baal. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. Now, commentators reckon that name was actually coined by the writer of Kings. They think the God's real name was Beelzebul, which means exalted Lord, small l-o-r-d. That's probably what his worshippers called him. But the writer of Kings is making fun of the God of Ekron. He really ought to be called Beelzebub. Because that's all he is. He is not exalted. He does not rule human history. He's just 
Lord of the flies, if he's Lord of anything at all. We're supposed to see the foolishness of what Ahaziah is doing. After all, he's been shown of Baal's impotence. It's been demonstrated again and again. But here, as this man stares death in the face, he goes back yet again, seeking help from the Lord of the flies. Dale Ralph Davis says this, Staring death in the face, whether slowly or suddenly, ought to drive us to sobriety and truth. Death is no time to be playing with dead-end options. We must have the one who has the words of eternal life. But here is Ahaziah about to step off the edge of life with nothing but Baal. Or, I should say, with nothing. Ahaziah's real problem here is not his injuries. It's his reliance on a savior who cannot save him. A Lord who is no Lord at all. And I know none of us would ever go on a pilgrimage to Ekron. None of us would ever rely on a God called Beelzebub or Beelzebul. But what do we rely on? Really? Where have we placed our hope? Really? In our doctor? In our counselor? In our family? Our own strength and wisdom? In the experts? There are lots of those around telling us maybe what the economy is going to do and who we need to vote for to make our lives better. Or the experts who tell us what science has decided. Thank God for doctors and counselors and family. Thank God for some of the experts too, some of them. But are they, any of those things, what we rely on? Are they what we place our hope in? We may love them, we may respect them, we may have significant things to learn from them. But to put our hope in them is no better than relying on the Lord of the flies. None of the things I've just mentioned can guide us safely through death. None of those things can welcome us on the other side of death. They don't even know what tomorrow has in store for us. They are not trustworthy in any ultimate sense. They were never intended to be. Putting our ultimate hope in experts, that is misplacing our hope. Even putting our ultimate hope in people we love, that is 
placing a burden on them that is too heavy for them to bear. No matter how much they love us back, they are not Lord of our future. Ahaziah chooses to rest his hope on the Lord of the flies. But he finds himself very quickly confronted by the untamable, merciful God. Ahaziah has a plan. He's going to get his help from Beelzebub. But the living God has a different plan. And he doesn't hesitate to cut right across what Ahaziah has planned. After his messengers head off to Ekron, we're told in verse 3, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore... This is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So Elijah went. Elijah has been given an announcement of judgment. But it is also an opportunity to repent. We've seen that plenty of times already in Kings. God doesn't just strike Ahaziah down in his bed. He sends his prophet to announce what's coming. It's like a shot across the bows for Ahaziah. He could still humble himself before God. He could still seek mercy from the one who can truly help him. A bit later, we are going to see someone else doing that. As long as a person is alive, they can repent. And if we ask why judgment is coming Ahaziah's way, the answer is in the question. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going off to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? That question is like a catchphrase in this passage. We hear it three times. And the point of the question is, by relying on the God of Ekron, Ahaziah is saying the God of Israel cannot be relied on. By turning to Beelzebub instead of Yahweh, Ahaziah is saying Yahweh is either non-existent or he's completely irrelevant. That's the announcement idolatry always makes. When you and I turn to things that are not God, When we look to those things for our hope and our deliverance, we're really saying God is either non-existent or completely irrelevant. And not only is that foolish, it's the height of rebellion against God. It's a rejection of his love and his mercy. So today the question God asks us is this. Is it because I'm not your savior that you're going off to look for other saviors? 
Is it because I'm not your refuge that you're seeking refuge in your career or your relationships or even your hobbies? As if they can provide the hope and peace and security that only truly come from me. In the face of death, God asks us, are you playing with dead-end options instead of clinging to me, the giver of everlasting life? Ahaziah has turned from the only true Savior to chase a false Savior. But the true Savior is not going to be ignored. He has sent Elijah, and Elijah finds Ahaziah's messengers on the road. He delivers God's message to them. And instead of carrying on to Ekron, they see the importance of what they've been given. So they go back to the palace, and they deliver the Lord's message to the king. Ahaziah is surprised they're back so soon. And when he hears the message, it doesn't take him long to figure out Elijah's involved in all this. Apparently Elijah had a unique dress sense or fashion sense and it made him instantly recognizable as he walked around. So now Ahaziah knows who he's dealing with. What's he going to do? Remember, he knows how God works through Elijah. He's seen God defeating 450 prophets of Baal through Elijah. He has seen God send fire from heaven when Elijah prayed on Mount Carmel. But Ahaziah decides the very best option for him is not to listen to Elijah. He decides to try and get rid of him. The king sends 50 soldiers and commentators have pointed out This is not a guard of honor for Elijah. These men are sent to silence him. The middle of verse 9 says, The captain went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, Man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah answered the captain, If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty men. Then the fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. It's important for us to see this is not a case of Elijah going overboard. This is not a prophet overreacting. This is Almighty God showing his power and authority to a king who doesn't seem to believe in his power and authority. Ahaziah has denied God's power by putting his hope in the Lord of the flies. He has denied God's authority by barking commands at God's prophet. As if God's word is under the king's control. But now God gives proof. He is the one with the power and authority. He is the untamable God. He cannot be avoided. He will not be ignored. 
And he does not bow to idolaters who try to silence him. Someone has defined madness as doing the same thing over and over again and hoping for a different result. And on that definition, Ahaziah behaves like a madman. He sends 50 more soldiers to order Elijah down, and the same thing happens. So he sends 50 more soldiers. Presumably, this would have gone on all day if it hadn't been for the captain of this third group. Look in the middle of verse 13. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah. Man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men. But now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. God's mercy is not complicated. We don't need to perform a special ritual in order to receive God's mercy. We don't need to recite a secret formula. All we need is to humble ourselves and ask for his mercy. Now, I know this man is speaking to Elijah. But in this situation, Elijah is God's representative. The fire that has been falling is not Elijah's, it's God's. The mercy this man needs is God's mercy. And he receives it. He doesn't demand anything. He falls on his knees acknowledging God's authority and power. And the fire doesn't fall on him and his man. God's mercy is not complicated. Haven't we seen in previous weeks, the living God has an enthusiasm for mercy. He doesn't take much persuading to withhold his judgment, to open the floodgates of his compassion and grace and forgiveness. If you've never experienced God's mercy, please don't think he's waiting for some big performance from you. You don't have to earn the right to his mercy. All it takes is a humble cry for mercy. That's all it takes. But for some people, that's too big a price. Remember Ahaziah, he's still lying in his bed, staring death in the face. But he will not humble himself. He'll chase after the Lord of the flies, but he won't fall on his knees before the living God. And so Ahaziah receives the judgment of the living God. We're told he dies in his bed according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. 
We started this morning by reminding ourselves the God we meet in this book is the God of all history. The same God who's alive and reigning today. And he is someone we cannot afford to ignore. Because our lives and our futures are in his hands. So let's ask ourselves, where is my hope? Where's your hope? Is it resting on something that's reliable? And the Bible insists there is only one reliable place to rest our hope. That place is a person, the risen Son of God. He is reliable because he has conquered death. He holds the keys of death and Hades. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. There is no other reliable savior. There is no other safe refuge anywhere. In the 1500s, some church leaders were asked to sum up what it means to put our hope in Christ. And they wrote it down in the form of a question and then an answer. And the question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And here's the answer that the Christian is able to give. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must work for my salvation. That is the hope we have as God's people. Why would we turn to any other hope? In life and in death, there is no other love like God's love. It's a love that rescues and saves us. In life and in death, there's no other power like God's power. It delivers us from the enemy and it never lets us go. So let's come to him for mercy. And every new day, let's put our hope in him all over again. Every day, let's turn from the dead end options that are always tempting us. Let's turn back again to the lover of our souls. We have an opportunity to do that now as we sing together. These last two songs remind us Jesus Christ is our only true rock and refuge. Christ alone, cornerstone.